Good morning. I invite you to have a seat as you do. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it's my joy to bring to you this morning the Word of God. If you are in Hubtown, kids, you are not dismissed this morning. Uh, Today is Family Fifth Sunday, and so on the fifth Sunday of the month, uh, whenever they arrive uh, and, and, and come our way, we invite the children Uh, that would normally be dismissed to stay in here with us. And so if you see a child round about you this morning, uh, give them a high five and uh, and encourage them to to pay attention. Child, if you see an adult around you sleeping, I welcome you and invite you. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Don't don't bother them. Let them sleep. But, But you yourself do not fall asleep. Child, if you're here this morning, I want to give you a tip about a setup. I was set up. It literally was a setup. She set everything up in our fifth grade, fifth grade classroom. She had passed out instructions, a sheet of paper with 20 or so steps for each of us to take. In preparation for this test that we were about to take, she had placed extra sheets of paper, certain colored pencils there on the desk in front of us. She had put pink chalk in the trays under the chalkboards. Ask your parents what those are. She would set us up. There at the top of the instruction sheet that she gave us, it said, read all the instructions first. That's step one. Step two was write your name at the top of the sheet. Step three was draw a triangle around the title page, or the title. And there was the catch. Step one was to read all the instructions first. And yet, to save time, most of us in the classroom, to our shame, sped past that first one and just began to do the work. Had we known, had we obeyed, had we followed the instruction, that the last piece of instruction was to disregard all previous instructions and sit quietly until the end of the period. Well, most of us hammered through those instructions, calling out our names, doing the random odd tasks that we had been instructed to do, and then instructed to disregard. If we had noticed that foundational instruction, that foundational command, we would have disregarded all else. And yet there were a few in the class that did, the goody two-shoes. We recognized them early on in the year. We were glad to do that, and we marked them and did not associate with them the rest of the year. Now, that's not the lesson for you to learn. The lesson for you to learn is if you ever see pink chalk or crayons or markers in the tray in front, read all the instructions first. Our text today reveals a similar situation. While there is no pink chalk, and you may not see that being relevant to you, the situation that we read in the text is, in fact, relevant to you, each and every one of us, whether you're three years old this morning or 95. So if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 28 and following. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and following. This is what the Word of God says. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord 
your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is, this is the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Again, quickly, would you ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word? Father, again, we look to you now. We celebrate that you have given us light. We've, you've given us light in your Son. And though the dark, darkness could not overcome or comprehend, Father, we pray that you would allow us to this morning, that we would understand Christ, that we would see the glories, truths of his gospel ever more clearly this morning from the oldest to the youngest, from the newest believer to the farthest from you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your precious holy name. Amen. Here's the truth that I see rising from the top, rising from the depths of this text to the top, I should say. It's this, that God wants more than just your hands. He also wants your heart. God wants more than just your hands. He wants also your heart. As we look through this text, I think we're going to four lessons that we can see from this interaction of Jesus with this scribe that will help to support this main idea. Those four lessons that I hope that we learn clearly this morning are this, that we should ask the right question of the right person. Ask the right question of the right person. We'll see the scribe teaching us that lesson here in just a moment. But another lesson that I pray that we'll all learn this morning is this, to, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Third, incredibly important, stated in the negative, don't settle for religious or moral activity. Do not settle for religious or moral activity. And finally, and it may be the most obscure and confusing, don't stand outside the gate of God's kingdom. Don't stand outside the gate of God's kingdom. Here are these lessons that we'll learn from the scribe. It'd be helpful if we knew what a scribe was. Well, scribes were a part of the Sanhedrin. They were teachers of the law. The ruling religious body, they were a part of it. And here, they are a part of this group that is attacking Jesus. Last week, we looked at the Sadducees who came to Jesus. They asked him a question, trying to disprove his authority, trying to gain ammunition or even mock him. The week before, the text before, I should say, we saw the Herodians along with the Pharisees doing the same thing. And the scribes were a part of this group with a similar motive hoping 
to tear Jesus apart. And yet at this particular time, with this particular scribe, we see that something is happening in his heart. Something is different about this scribe. Look at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one with the other. The Sadducees with each other. The Sadducees listening to Jesus. He had obviously witnessed the exchange of last week's text. And he saw that Jesus answered them well. And so it's understandable that this guy is impressed. This scribe who was thinking that Jesus needed to be dismantled, he needed to be taken away from the presence of the people, that he was leading them astray, he sees there's something different about Jesus. There's something strange and glorious about his words. So unlike the other religious leaders, he sees that Jesus' teaching is anchored in Scripture, It's not dangerous heresy, and he asks him a question, and I think this is important. We won't tarry long on this particular part, but I think it's worth noticing that this guy, this scribe, he asks the right question of the right person. Have you ever done the opposite? Have you ever asked the right question of the wrong person? I thought a little bit about different ways that I could illustrate that, and I don't think it's necessary, evidenced by your chuckles abroad. We've all done that. Have you done the opposite, though? Have you asked the, the, the wrong question to the right person? If you're thinking of your spouse and the day that you proposed, maybe that's unhelpful. At any rate, this man knew he saw something different in Jesus. And when it came to answering the deep, dark questions that he had in his life, The struggles that he was facing, he had gone to the right person. I would ask you, not in jest this time, but who do you go to when you need answers to life's most difficult questions? To whom do you turn? Where do you go? To what book? To what modern day philosopher? And maybe it's not the general questions of life, maybe the meaning of life. Maybe it's more of which way you should go, which decision you should make. Often, it can be incredibly challenging for us to know which way we should go. And yet, the book of James, the writer, James, he tells us if we lack wisdom, if we need instruction, who should we ask? The modern-day philosopher? Our mother or grandmother? Hey, these are can be helpful at times, but who does James say we should go to? We should ask the right questions of the right person. We should go to God who gives wisdom to all men liberally, generally, generously he gives. And so ask the right questions of the right person. This this scribe was paying attention and he had a burning question that he thought Jesus could answer and he was correct. At any rate, you might say, what sort of question does he ask? What is the the meaning of this? Well, this scribe asks, which commandment is the most important of all? That's not too difficult for us to understand. We like to create a structure in our minds, don't we? Even when you're a five or six-year-old child, you walk into the room, if you're a boy, and you think, I wonder who in this room I could whoop in a fight or an arm wrestling match. And I wonder who could whoop me. We automatically begin to put ourselves in this pecking order. Who is the greatest? Who is the weakest? Who's the smartest? 
We ask these questions naturally, and it doesn't stop in our childhood. Even the scribes are asking the thoughtful men, the religious leaders, of the 613 laws of God, which is the greatest? Which is the most important? Which is the most foundational? Weighing these sorts of questions, that's, that's what scribes did in these days. Even Jesus would make comments earlier in his life, in his ministry, he would make comments about weightier points of the law. Which ones were lesser, which ones were greater. It's interesting, around this time in history, there lived a man who was a a rabbi, he was a religious leader, his name was Hillel. I've referenced him before in our study of the Gospel of Mark. There's an account in the Talmud that, that talks about how he thinks the law should be summed up. Let me read a portion of it for you. Once there was a Gentile who came before Shammai and said to him, convert me on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And Shammai pushed him aside with the measuring stick he was holding. The same fellow came before Hillel and Hillel converted him saying, that which is despicable to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah and the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. This Gentile comes before these two rabbis and says, you don't have much time. I can't stand on my foot that long to tell me in as quickly, as short a time as possible, what is the summary of the law of God? What does he require of me? What does he expect? And Shammai just pushes him over with his stick and says, you ain't got enough time, buddy. You're not going to be able to do that. And maybe that was a wiser answer. Hello, he's not w- willing to, to let it go so quickly. He, he, thinking quickly on his own two feet, says, that which is despicable to you, that which you despise, that which you hate, do not do to your fellow. Everything else in the law of God rests on that. Go and learn. And this man here this morning, in our text, the scribe is asking Jesus, this is what Hillel has said. 20, 30 years prior. Jesus, what do you say? It was even common of a question a couple hundred years before Jesus' time. There was another man by the name of Simon the Just. Wouldn't you like to, be, to go back to titles like that nowadays? What would you be called? He was famously called Simon the, Simon the Just, and he famously said this, the world exists through three things, the law, service, and acts of loving kindness. And service, he means uh, temple service, prayers, religious actions. The law of God, service to God in the temple, and acts of loving kindness to your brother. These both men, these both of them tried to distill what the Creator had given and required of His creatures. One way to understand the, the greatest question, which is the greatest of these, is to think in terms of foundation. So these men are trying to answer, what is the foundation of what God requires? This scribe is asking Jesus, what is the foundation of what God requires? If we were to boil it all down, what's supporting it? And really that makes sense. If you think about this building, there are stones or a rock or brick that go up pretty high. And there are stones that go down pretty low. And the greatest, the largest of, our, of, of what comprises this building are found on the bottom. If you were to go to the Temple Mount of, there in Jerusalem, if you were to see where the temple of God, of the Jews, once stood, you'd see foundational stones that almost wouldn't be able to be held in this very room. They're so large, uncut, there in the corner. 
And yet up higher, as the, building, as, the, as the structure goes up, you see the smaller stones there. All working together, all in the same form, all pointing in the same direction. The foundational stones, the bottom stones, there, there are the greatest. And so Jesus, which laws, which of the 613 are the most foundational, are the most important Not to be overlooked if we only have a little bit of time. We're standing on one foot. Which one should we make sure that we get? Verse 29, Jesus answers. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he gets a freebie here. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these To my knowledge, there had never been a rabbi that had summed up the law just as Jesus has done here. We have no record of it. Jesus, while the scribe is standing on one foot, quickly offers these two commands. And they stand in contrast with these other two that I've referenced. Rabbi Hillel, his his instruction were man-centered, not God-centered. They were weak, unlasting, Simon, the just, his summation of what God requires of us was vague, and I would argue even out of order. And Jesus comes out and says, lesson number two, scribe, you need to learn this. Hagerstown Church, you need to learn this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus says. This wasn't an obscure command, by the way. The second lesson for us to learn today, it's not obscure. Practicing Jews in Jesus' day would have recited that very phrase two times a day. It's called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Jesus almost word for word quotes it. The Shema is the first Hebrew word in the passage. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu. The first word Shema just means listen. When we say listen to our kids, we just mean hear. But when the Shema in the Hebrew says listen, it doesn't just mean hear. It means hear and obey. These two things go hand in hand. Jesus is referencing that the people of Israel, that those asking the question even should hear and obey. What should they hear? What should they obey? That God is one God. When the law was given, when the Shema was first given to the people of Israel, they were entering into a land that was pagan, filled with teachings of many gods, many little gods, many false gods, many ideologies, many teachings that were contrary one to the other. And so the Shema stands in the face of that and says, do not listen to them, listen to the one God. And it goes on to say, listen to the one God who is your God, our God. All the people living in a sinful world, God chose this one group, the people of Israel, Abraham's seed. He chooses them to demonstrate his steadfast love, his faithfulness towards them. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful God. 
He's one God. He's their God. And what does he ask of them? What does he ask in return? That because of his love for them, he's asking them to return that love back to him. The neighbor part is added on there. Jesus really grabs that out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, one of the laws. He says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus really does what Hillel attempts to do in summarizing the law for the Gentile that, that visits him. He summarizes the law. He doesn't get things out of order and he doesn't leave God out. I want you to notice in the Ten Commandments that we have, of the, of the ten, the first four who are they directed towards? First four are directed towards God. What about the next six or the last six of the ten? Who are they directed towards? Man, neighbor. One flows right out of the other. The two laws are foundational to all the other laws, and the first law is foundational to the second. And as the scribe listens to Jesus, organize this summary and quickly give it to the crowd there directly to the scribe he realizes that what jesus is saying is sound what jesus is saying is true not just true in his own mind but true according to the very word of god that that scribe believed and cherished what does the scribe say Verse 32, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. To put it frankly, this scribe is impressed. He agrees with Jesus and what's interesting is he doesn't just listen to what Jesus says. He says, amen, and he adds to it. He makes an application. Did you catch it? He makes an important application to Jesus' statement, and he says, it's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he's referencing is Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1, the Word of God comes to the people of God through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, speaking for God, says, I see all of your sacrifices. I hear all of your prayers. I recognize all of your festivals and your celebrations, and they seem to be pointed toward me, but I see also your heart. And it's far from me. Your heart is not for me. You're going through the motions. Perhaps you've forgotten me. Perhaps you've slipped into hypocrisy. Your prayers are vain. Your sacrifices are meaningless. A good summary of that thought found in Isaiah is in verse, 20, or verse 13 of chapter 29. This is what the Word of God says. And the Lord said, Because His people draw near with their mouth and honor Him with their lips while their hearts are far from me. God recognized in his own people that they were going through these acts, they were doing these religious activities, and yet their hearts were far from God. Another prophet said similarly, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, 
speaking on behalf of God, said, for I desire steadfast love. In return for my steadfast love, I expect and desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, true relationship with God, rather than burnt offerings. You see, the Israelites preferred a list of rules they, per, they, they preferred a list of exterior actions that others could observe, that they themselves could observe in themselves. They preferred all that over a true examination of their own heart. Maybe they're not alone. I think what this scribe is pointing out for us this morning is a basic truth about man and about God, that God not only looks on the outward appearance, not only does he look on the outward actions, what you do with your hands, what you say with your mouth, even in church on Sunday, throughout the week, Monday through Friday, but also he looks past all of those activities, all of those actions, and he looks on the heart. We know that from the book of 1 Samuel. The Lord chooses David to be king. What's the, what's the statement made there? The Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, don't look on the height of his stature. Why? Because I have refused him. He's not the right man to be king. David is. And while he may look scrawny, he may not look ready, he is in fact the one, and I know because God says, I'm looking on his heart. So there may be smoke rising from your altar. There may be prayers going up along with it. And God sees that smoke rising, and yet he also sees the invisible affections of your own heart, affections that you are unable to even see yourself. Isn't it grace that God would come to, that he would send his prophets to his people there in Isaiah and and even in Hosea, and even now that he would reference this and the scribe would see this. And I think the lesson that we need to learn this morning the third lesson that we learn from this scribe is that we should not settle for religious or moral activity we shouldn't settle for religious or moral activity he's revealing something there in that statement about our own human nature about the nature of the israelites even in jesus's day that we can get so focused on the method and we forget the meaning we get so focused on the method and we forget the mandate. That mandate is what? To love God and to love others. A great example is found in John chapter 4. Do you remember what occurs there? The woman at the well, Jesus has an encounter with her there. What does she say? Jesus, you're looking into my heart right now, and I don't like it. Can we change the subject? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and yet they say we should worship on that mountain, Come on, help us out. Settle this debate right here. And what does Jesus say? Hey, sweetheart, the day is coming. The day is coming when we won't worship in that mountain or in this one, but we will worship in what? In spirit and in truth. Spirit referencing, not maybe, maybe perhaps the spirit of God, but additionally, in your heart, the deepest parts of your being, Truly worshiping God, not in some exterior motivated way, but in spirit, the deepest parts of you, and in truth. You see, God wants more than your words. He wants more than your hands. 
God wants your heart as well. God wants your affections, all of it. He wants your love. And so Hagerstown Church, do not settle for religious or moral activity. One commentator said, true worship is not the mechanical repetition of rituals, but should be wholehearted and reverent. It should be based on trustful and obedient lives, and that obedience is itself to be seen as an act of worship. That's not too difficult for us to understand, is it? If a man assures his wife of his love for her on their anniversary, a love that he pledged to her there on their wedding day, and maybe he even buys her expensive gifts there on his anniversary with her, but the weeks leading up to and the weeks following were marked with absence and unfaithfulness and unkind words, what would the wife be accurate in thinking on that anniversary day? Well, he acknowledges me with his lips, with his words, and yet I can see that his heart is far from me. God is inviting us us all to love him with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our minds, and all of our strength. Our entire being exhaustively poured out for God. And that we should go there instead of just religious activities. Our love for God will be evidenced on a heart level and not just on a hand level. If you're a parent here this morning, there's an application here for you. It's so easy for us to look at, the, at our children and disregard their hearts and think only of their hands. That they obey the laws. That they obey the rules. And of course, that's important. We don't get a pass on those things. We should encourage our children and correct them when they need it. And at the same time, we should not ignore their hearts. Recognizing is uh, biblically recognizing that both hands and heart are important. So don't teach your child that God or that parents only want their children to obey their words in deed, but not in heart. He wants their hearts also. And I think that's kind of illustrated in the danger of the tithe, the danger of, of thinking that God wants 10%. If you give 10% of your income, to God, to the church, to the, to the mission, I, I, I praise you for that. That's a great thing to do. And yet God it requires far more than just a tenth. Everything that we own, all of our hearts, all, every bit of our mind, all of our strength, all of that is God's. And so it's a dangerous heresy to think that God only requires of us 10%. Now, perhaps you only give 10% to the church, but the rest of the 90 should still be poured out in some form or fashion upon the altar of God because that is what he requires of us. Not just lip service, not just a little bit, all of us. And that might seem selfish that God will require that of us. But think, who is it in this world that deserves everything that you are is it your friends is it your family is it your nation or is it your creator our creator is the only one who deserves everything that we are he deserves all of our praise all of our attention all of the glory that we can muster it is his let me ask you this question 
Why is it that we so often prefer to settle for religious activities alone and not true worship, not true love for God on a heart level? Why do you think it is? What's the reasoning? In your fallen state, that you would prefer to give God a little bit of religious activity, a little bit that would make you feel better about yourself, a little bit that would make others think well of you. Friend, God sees your heart. And it seems as though this unnamed scribe, he's beginning to see his own heart as well as he has this encounter with Jesus. You see, here's the catch. Here's the problem. If the greatest command is to love the Lord God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then wouldn't it make sense that the greatest sin, the greatest sin then would be to not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If the greatest commandment is to love him, then the greatest sin would be to not love him with all of your being. You can be sure that this man, just like the rest of us, this scribe, just like the rest of us, he knew that he had not loved God with everything in him, and he could not love God with everything in him, that his heart was filthy and his heart was broken. He needed a Savior. He had come so far, but now he stands just outside the kingdom. And God says as much. Jesus there in verse 34, what does he say? And when Jesus saw that this man answered wisely, man, this guy, he's getting it. It's becoming clear to him. He sees that God wants our love entirely and that he doesn't want vain religious activities that aren't coupled with that true, unfiltered love. Jesus sees that and says, this man's answered wisely. And he tells them something that is both encouraging and staggering at the same time. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean, to not be far from the kingdom of God? Well, it it means this. He's, one, not in the kingdom of God at that particular time and place. He's not a part of the spiritual kingdom of God, of where Jesus Christ is the king. He's not in it yet. And remember, we looked at this last week. That's part of this whole depravity plan. Each of us, born in this state that we are, from the beginning of our lives, that we are born outside of the kingdom of God, this scribe is no different. He's not far from the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know what takes place in the life of this man, but we know this, that we are not to stand outside of God's kingdom. It seems as though this man had taken steps Moving forward, he had asked the right question of the right person. He had seen that what, and agreed that God required us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He even added that we're not to do that or to neglect that and be satisfied with mere religious moral activities. And yet Jesus says of him and to him, you're not far but you're outside the kingdom of God. You've heard the saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It applies to the kingdom of God as well. He's close, and yet he's not there. 
if you were to be walking through the book of Romans, the scribe would agree with Romans chapter 1. That each of us are accountable to God. Each and every one of us are accountable to God. And yet, according to step 2, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6, that we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It seems as though the scribe has made it past step 1 to step 2. Step three would be to call out to Jesus for salvation. And yet he's not quite there yet. Step three is Romans 10, verses 10 through 13. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one has ever kept the law of God. No one has ever fully kept the commandments except for Jesus Christ. He alone has loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, exclusively and exhaustively. And so the bad news is this. If you have ever broken the law of God, then you have earned God's wrath. And I think the scribe was to that point. He saw the bad news. And yet the good news there, standing right before him, is Jesus, who kept the law and all other subordinate laws that were supported by that foundational law, And that same Jesus paid the penalty for all those who would place their trust in Him. He would cleanse their hearts and make them new. Each who called on Him. He alone was capable of keeping the law. He alone is able to cleanse your heart. But maybe you say here this morning, my heart is filthy. My heart is sinful. I've I've even tried to keep the law. I've tried to love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind. I've been unable to do so if that's your testimony here this morning as it relates to your past jesus cleanses hearts and as it relates to your future jesus gives new hearts he gives us the ability to love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength that's part of justification and so this morning if you're close you're standing right there in front of Jesus and that's the irony Jesus says you're close to the kingdom of God I've heard it said that he was 18 inches from the kingdom of God and while that's partially true I think he's more like six feet from the kingdom of God right there before him is the gate and yet it seems to us that he stopped only a few feet away he was close but he wasn't quite there as I often am I'm reminded of Christian that that faithful pilgrim He'd come to the right person for the right answer. He'd gotten a hold of the truths of God in a book. that told him about God and told him about himself. He knew what the law commanded and he began his journey. He wasn't willing to settle on his journey for vain, fake religion. He wasn't willing to settle for worshiping himself and giving glory and love to his own heart. Furthermore, he was not willing to stand outside of the gate and he crossed that river because when he came face to face 
with the door to that gate, the door to that kingdom, he called out for salvation. My question for you this morning is this. God wants more than just your hands. He also wants your heart. And are you willing to be found by Jesus Christ inside the gate? Or will you be found outside? Will you trust Jesus to cleanse your heart? Will you trust Him to make it new again? He wants your hands, friend. And He wants your heart. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we... Consider the text this morning. And as we do, we pray that what happened to this scribe in some small way would happen to us as well. That we would see truth. That we would hear your words and they would resound and echo in our hearts. That as we take steps towards the kingdom this morning, that you would respond that we are acting wisely. Father, we pray that as we look at your word, we would ask questions of it. That we would neglect the philosophies of this world that would cause us to turn our gaze elsewhere. We would ask the questions of life's greatest meaning and purpose of you that we would ask direction in the large things, that we would ask direction in the small things, but that we would wholly rest in you. Father, we pray that you would, through the power of Jesus' raised life, that you would raise these hearts. Father, take hearts of stone, give us hearts of flesh, hearts that don't love ourselves, that are dead in our own sins, but hearts that are bent towards you, hearts that are willing to pour everything out for Jesus and for his glory. Father, would you deliver us in the large ways and in the small ways from empty morality and religion that saves no one. We wholly trust in Jesus' name who cleanses us from sin and gives us a new heart. Father, this is our prayer. Church, I want to I invite you with your heads bowed, your eyes closed to consider your own life. It's been said that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of daily repenting. As you sat under the word of God preached, would you ask the spirit of God to show you where in your life you need to repent, where you've not been trusting the gospel. where you've been trusting in empty morality or even religion. Would you ask the Spirit to work in your heart? And as you do, I want to invite you to stand and in reflection and even in response, would you stand and sing the words of this song? Hagerstown Church, would you rise and praise Jesus?